Tonight I'd like to speak on the topic of the four Brahma-viharas, more or less consciously not said much about them so far because I wanted to give, um, not preference, but uh, emphasis on um, meditation teaching and some details on meditation teaching and I plan to continue on this. but. I sense these Brahma-viharas are a huge topic and over the years in my understanding of the path and also in the attempt in my personal practice, I, they have gained in weight. Initially I thought Brahma-viharas are things you do basically if you don't have samadhi. Yeah, that's what you do when you don't have stillness of mind, so you're nice. That's, if you can't do clarity and wisdom and samadhi, then at least you can be nice. Um, I concede this is a rather limited vision of the Brahma-viharas, as I have come to admit. <clears throat> it isn't just a soft option for meditators. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, you know, to my defense, it's not just my particular lack of understanding. Certainly that plays the major part in there, but the uh, Theravada tradition has not always done the best of service to this teaching, to be blunt with you, uh, particularly the commentarial tradition. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the Visuddhimaka, they, the Visuddhimaka, the greatest commentarial edifice, 900 years after the Buddha's day and more or less the the catechism of Theravada Buddhism. That particular book, comprehensive as it tries to be and plausibly argued as it often is and uh, laced with many lively examples that particular book teaches the four Brahma-viharas squarely as samatha practices. Yeah. Yeah. So the major purpose in the Visuddhimagga of the Brahma-viharas is not the development of the human heart in, in differing tones of universal empathy, as I believe this teaching. Uh, uh, this is the major brunt of this teaching. Um, but instead, it teaches the Brahma-viharas as basically samatha objects, just because the mind finds easier stillness with those objects, particularly metta, which is absolutely true. It is no secret that if you're interested in having a still mind, there's basically two things you can do. One of them is let go, and the other one is develop kindness. These are the two most potent things you can develop if you want samadhi. And it's no secret that people who have let go and have made a virtue out of this and people who have access to kindness generally find it easier that their minds go still. Conversely, uh, if you've cultivated aversion, hatred, rejection, denial, uh, and, you know, seething hostility, then this is generally something that quite successfully prevents any samadhi from occurring. So, if you want to be 
calm, be nice. Yeah, that's very simple. But there is more to Brahma Viharas than just being nice and receiving spaciously and welcoming what's happening. The Brahma Viharas, let me say, are they occur on many levels. And the first level is certainly they are expressions of the human heart. I have an ongoing run-in with psychologists who tell me that Brahma Viharas are complex emotions. They are not. Uh, Brahma Viharas are not complex emotions. They are not states. You know, there is a dimension of the Brahma Vihara which says this is a uh, fundamental capacity of the human heart. This is what constitutes your humanity. You don't have to work for it. You can't lose it. It's not a virtue. It's not a state. It may be occluded, it may be undeveloped, it may be forgotten, it may be not acknowledged, but it's there. That's the important part. That's rock bottom. That's what constitutes your humanity. You know, the capacity to have a form of empathy, differing tones of empathy. Empathy not just as the capacity to resonate, but empathy also as something that gives you a connection to the part in you that is capable of acting. So, the really the old word uh, for the Brahma-viharas, or the word more often used in the text, is called apamanyas, the immeasurables. That is when a Brahma-vihara, uh, one of the nodes of universal empathy, has become purified with the help of stillness of mind, and so that it is expansive, that it does extend over all things, that it can no longer be measured. It has become unlimited. That's why it is called apamanya, immeasurable. Uh, that's why they're called when we recite them tonight on your sheet, as you probably have seen. So what are these? The Brahma-viharas, despite their Indian name, are not, they are archetypal. They have nothing to do with your creed, or with your language, or the color of your skin. They're not even Buddhist. Quite possible that other Indian traditions have mentioned him. I know they occur in Patanjali, although personally I believe Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are way after the Buddha. Uh, we cannot really date them. There are various arguments speaking in favor uh, of this or that dating, which shall remain uncleared here. Uh, but it's quite possible that the Buddhists were not the first to speak of those Brahma-viharas, of those dimensions of the human art. One of them friendliness and love, one of them the capacity to resonate with pain, compassion, the capacity to rejoice and experience joy at the success and the good things in another person's life. And finally, uh, quality of equanimity, which is still a relational aspect. Let me state that with great emphasis. Brahma-viharas are dimensions of relation. Yeah. Brahma-viharas are things that occur in relationship. They're not just some internalized, mentalized concept that I can attain and maintain and then I feel good. They are practices for the human realm. In many ways, they're the best practices for the human park. So, at the bottom end, you have Brahma-viharas that cannot be lost. They can only be made conscious. But I 
belief that there is no way you can speak of progress, realization, health, maturity, um, development without speaking of the Brahma Viharas. There is literally no notion of health, sanity, maturity, uh, growth, unless the Brahma Viharas are concerned. Brahmaviharas do also not fit onto a model of developmental psychological uh, factors. Yeah. There are a couple of things, and you know I'm a friend of using psychological language to help explain uh, the Buddhist maps, since we happen to be thinking mostly in psychological terms, even if we may not like psychology, or even if we berate that fact, it's a, a simple truth that for about a hundred years or maybe 90 years uh, popular reflection about the human mind seems to run along the lines of popularized notion of psychology that wasn't the case 100 years 120 years ago it wasn't we thought of ourselves when we thought of the interior of our experience when we spoke in other language than psychological language but nowadays I would expect all of you having grown up in a psychologized world. So it makes sense that we're trying to map Buddhist teaching in what appears to be the closest match for the terrain of experience. And in our days, this is um, a language that is strongly influenced by initially analysis and then academic and then increasingly less academic models of psychology. So, despite this, I'd like to be emphatic about this, <laughs> Brahma-viharas are not a developmental state, or a developmental stage. Yeah? It's important to recognize them in the, the verticality of these teachings. Yeah? So there's something absolutely that cannot be lost in there. At the other end of the spectrum, yeah, we have the Brahma Viharas as the expression of a human being completely freed from all the um, trouble of the mind. So if you know enlightened people, that's, that's how they are expected to behave as an express, a living expression of Brahma Vihara, loving, caring, compassionate, joyous, capable of equanimity. If they're not behaving that way, they're probably not as enlightened as they say or as you think. There's a good chance. Um, so, the Brahma-viharas are the mode of expression of a human being completely freed of the asavas, completely freed of the intoxicants. Yeah, that's the other end of the spectrum. And we have Brahma-vihara somewhere in the middle, or somewhere halfway, one up. Now Brahma-viharas become virtues. Brahma-viharas become practices. Brahma-viharas become things. We are strongly encouraged by the Buddha's teaching to actually live, to spend time with, to cultivate, to strengthen, to make more resilient, and to practice with others. Brahma-viharas are the recommended habitat I don't know, we have a very funny word in German, it's called uh, a biotope, yeah, from Topol's place. And, you know, uh, you can 
play a little bit with that word and you could make a psychotope out of this. Yeah? It's, the, it's the habitat of your psyche. So these Brahma-viharas are clearly recommended as states to be uh, cultivated, to be strengthened, to be made much of, as, this, as the texts say. To be made much of. In other words, to be um, made abundant and easily accessible. Brahma-viharas as paradigms of how we, uh, in an empathetic way, relate to each other. Remember, empathy is a big thing. Yeah? Evolutionary biology uh, tells us that basically we grow, uh, we have grown into what we are, our species and our civilization, because of the capacity to empathize. We were not very good when it, when it, when it, when it came to climbing down from the trees and entering the open spaces. We were late in this, in this game. We were not very fast runners. We were not very strong climbers. Our jaws were rather uh, diminutive. Um, things could better swim or jump than we could. But we had a, a huge advantage. We started to team up. Uh, we could team up. And it's that teaming up bit which really made us uh, dominate the planet. It's, I'm still unsure whether this is a good thing, but uh, it's definitely, it has definitely happened to a staggering degree. And this was only possible because we could carve out our evolutionary niche. And we, don't, we didn't do that by the strength of our saber teeth or by uh, the, you know, the impenetrable nature of our skin or something like that. We, we did so by basically forming little gangs, groups, clans, tribes. And that helped that we could look after each other. That meant because we were hanging out together, it basically meant that was only possible if we cared. You know, if you don't care, you don't hang out with people. People are very, you know, they're hard work, basically, wherever you go. And unless you're willing to put up with that and you see some advantage in this, and uh, you're not going to do this, putting up with others. You know? And then it's just, you know, the, the young and the strong, they go off and do their thing. And, you know, the very young, they have to be really tough very quick, which doesn't make very good, good starting points for brain development if you have to be very quick on your legs. You know? Kangaroo baby falling out of mommy, crawling up the hairy legs, going to the pouch, finding the nipple can do that straight after birth. Human beings can't do that. You know. If you leave them, they die. They need lots of maintenance. Now, <coughs> because there was enough social stability there, uh, there was enough group support there that, uh, uh, you know, pregnancies could become longer and babies could become l less dependent or, or more dependent and more dependent mothers could take care of these babies and the gradual involvement of the male into the upbringing of the young and things like that. You know, these were all evolutionary feats, all on the basis squarely of empathy. Your whole uh, neofron neofrontal cortical development is squarely the result of human capacity for empathy. Yeah. This is not just Buddhist soft uh, niceness. Yeah. Human brain development goes straight back to empathy capacity to do that, social stability as the prerequisite for the utter dependence in which, say, a newborn human being uh, can be, because it will be protected, will be looked after. 
Yeah, there's a few other advantages, kind of keeping your grandparents alive <coughs> rather than feeding them to the, to the lions uh, and feeding them even though they can't do so much hunting anymore helps with the upbringing because suddenly you have a new generation, another generation of experience that goes to your grandchildren. Yeah? There's a huge amount of increase in terms of learning. So empathy is a big, big thing, even in terms of evolution, not just in terms of Buddhist mind training. So footnote closed. So what, what does this Brahma-vihara on the second level mean? It means that we are encouraged to relate to each other in empathetic ways and to acknowledge basic interconnectedness. Yeah. Bottom line of Brahma-viharas is, um, if developed, they're boundless. We can't lose them, even though we may uh, forget them. So they're inherent. And they basically are an expression of our interconnectedness. Ultimately, I can't be really happy unless you are happy. Because I'm connected with you. And if you are really miserable, then, and I'm connected with you, I can't be really happy. Unless you have some share in that happiness. Uh, this is powerful. This is really powerful. And this comes, you know, at some sacrifice. This is not an easy thing to do because, in a way, it's not reasonable. No? It's not fair. You haven't worked as hard, or you haven't uh, you haven't run as fast, or you have less power. Why should I share? Why should I make you happy? Why should I make sure that you're part of this? What I have. Yeah? This is tough, and it gets tougher the more you have. It's easy to share if you have nothing. It's a lot tougher if you start having some fortune or some wealth. You get more anxious, more protective. Start more investing into the trust fund for your kids rather than and so forth. I don't need to go there. You know what I mean. So, acknowledging inherent nature of our capacity to resonate in an empathetic way with others. Acknowledging that this capacity can be strengthened. That's the big message of the East. Yeah. Mindfulness can be trained. G generosity can be trained. Uh, harmony can be trained. Stillness can be trained. And Brahmaviharas, the um, immeasurables, can be trained. So we are asked on this second level to recognize such Brahmaviharas when they occur, in us or in others. We're asked to consent to them. We're asked to affirm them. We're asked to admire them. We're asked to strengthen them, to put energy into cultivating them, to make them more uh, resilient against their opposites. That is the message on that second uh, level of Brahmaviharas. And then finally, we have the Brahmaviharas as, um, as meditation objects. Yeah. Now, the Brahmaviharas are specific aspects of mind cultivation, where they are recommended um, to be taken up and strengthened in a meditative way. This is maybe the, in the West the most famous version of these um, for Brahmaviharas. And the yeah the way the Burmese tradition does that with the sentences. Yeah. This is not the only way, uh, but it's the one which has come across into the West, and it's the most famous one. Um, 
So I think when we speak of these Brahma Vyaras, it's necessary to understand that we speak of them, that they occur on, on different levels. And uh, I guess you hear my plea that we do not just reduce them to meditation objects, but actually we take them serious on the other levels as well, namely as um, virtues. That's the kick of a virtue. A virtue can be trained. Yeah? That's the big thing about virtues. They can be recognized, even if not in me, then maybe in you. Or I can even recognize the absence of that particular virtue. This is not flattering, but you're better off to recognize the absence of virtue than to not know about such a virtue at all. And then it can be affirmed. It can be admired. Think of uh, anything you admire, you begin to resemble. Admiration is a mature response. I'm not speaking of making yourself smaller so that something else looks bigger. Um, I'm not speaking of a sort of co-towing infantilization so that somebody uh, reasonably normal-sized starts to look giant-like yeah? by me making myself small. That's not the idea. But admiration is something that allows me to recognize the goodness of a quality and because I recognize this goodness, some of that goodness already starts to take place in me. If I look upon the same goodness with envy, I do something different. I make, a, with the goodness I recognize in the other, I make a statement about myself. And rather than admiring it and growing into it, admiringly, I make a statement about myself and I deem myself deficient of what is good in the other. Yeah. Not just do I not get the benefit of that, I get a state of envy, but I also am highly unlikely to emulate that quality of the other. Contrary, I, uh, I reify my self-construct, which once again is not a self-construct of potential and growth, but it's a self-construct defined in terms of want, lack, deficiency. That's quite often the case that when we see good stuff in others, our spontaneous reaction is sometimes not mudita, yeah? It's kind of envy. Oh, why she, you know? I've been longer serving on this, or I don't think it's actually such a good paper, you know? She wrote here, I, you know, I wish they had taken my paper for, for the prestigious publication. So we... Mudita is a little tricky for us. We're not, so, we're not so good with this often. But let us look at these a little individually. So metta, friendliness, maitri, comes from basically connection is friendship. Yeah? Is uh, union. There's even a connection to maituna, which is sexuality. Yeah? The connecting part, I think, is very strong in there. So having... Uh, establishing a friendly connection. Uh, I'm quite fond of the word love, but I believe it's uh, inflationary used, and it's probably confusing uh, to translate uh, metta with love. Although, fundamentally, I believe this is what it is. It's my willingness to connect, it's my capacity to connect, it's my uh, availability to, for such a connection, it's my stamina to hold such a connection. And that's what we do when we love. Yeah? We engage 
very deeply into something that is going to take us beyond of who we think we are. Sometimes we consent to this knowingly and sometimes we don't consent to this and it still takes us beyond our self-images. And as a Brahma-vihara metta, if we just want to break it down psychologically, what does it consist of? It means I orient towards something that I have taken note of. I welcome it. I turn towards it. I show interest. I create availability. I let it enter into my heart. I make here a space and then something opens here and something can come in and I allow my system to be a sort of resonance body to what comes in. This is a bit risky, it could hurt or I could like it so much that I would feel really bereft if it goes again or or it's a little uncontrollable. Once it's in, we're not sure what it's going to do. Is it going to stay there or is it going to expand or is it is it going to leave me abruptly or is it going to make me feel all funny? Yeah. Am I going to lose my boundaries or is it yeah, am I going to handle the pain either way? So there's always a risk there that my self-construct is not going to survive this experience. Yeah. Whenever I love, whenever I let something in, I will be transformed by this. This is clear. And it just takes a degree of trust. It, uh, it is a trust I cannot really have guarantees. Yeah. What I may be knowing from my past that things can go wrong. Yeah. We all know that. Things can go wrong between human beings. Turn sour. Uh, turn into rejection, abandonment, engulfment, you know, all our private little horrors. We're not so original in our horrors. The list of what you particularly fear is very limited. Is it going to eat me? Overwhelm me? Is it going to reject me? Is it going to abandon me? Does it make me sick? That's about it. Those are our pet horrors. They go back to very simple structures and contact behavior. Depending on what of those fears you deem most likely, overwhelm, abandonment, rejection or somatization, you're likely to build a psychological strategy. Your whole self-construct, this is my current stand of take this with a pinch of salt, this is my current level of understanding. Your whole self-construct is nothing else but a defense reaction against presumed pain that's lurking out there for you. The type of pain you deem most likely is the type of pain you're going to strategize mostly against. 20-30 years later you have a nice little self-construct that is beautifully defended against the danger that was fictional in the first place. But that's another story. Back to the Brahma-viharas and looking at metta. So noticing there is something, turning towards, welcoming it in, holding an interest, creating the space, letting it enter, making availability, resonating and staying in touch. This is what metta does in psychological terms.
Karuna is very much the same, but it does not see necessarily the good or the beauty, but it sees the pain. It does exactly the same movement, but its resonance is with the pain aspect in somebody's life. It's probably our most profound way of connecting with each other. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but I would say that the way we, the, the fact that I experience pain, that I know pain in my life, both in my heart and in my body, um, that I have plenty of that experience, and recognizing your own vulnerability by knowing my pain and seeing you experience pain is something that connects me in a very profound way. It connects me in a way that makes me go beyond my perceptions of you. It makes me, uh, it makes me drop anger, for example, when I see your pain. More powerfully than my meta practice does. Now, connecting with the humanity in you, recognizing in you a being that is seeking happiness and success and safety and love and fearing loss and pain and isolation makes me very tender in meeting you. It's that experience of sameness, you know, recognizing myself in you. Being in somebody else's shoes, finding your way into somebody else's skin, um, taking somebody else's place. This is a movement that in a profound way connects us and takes us out of isolation. Me being such a glorious, independent, scintillating unit somewhere somehow goes away when I know you have toothache and I have toothache. And we re resemble each other quite a bit when we have toothache. Um, so compassion, uh, or the older word for compassion, anukampa, which is interesting, meaning to tremble along with somebody, to tremble along. Uh, feeling the others trembling in one's own heart, in one's own body, is a powerful image for that little space I just described, of letting something in and resonating with it and being willing that what the other feels, I feel. And as you know, we, I would expect you have done this. We, we all do this quite naturally. For example, with children. We, um, you know, you have a kind of crying, sad, distraught kid coming and... Uh, before you know what's been going on, you, you, take, you take the child, you ask, you touch it, you say, what happened? And then usually sort of a tearful story comes and then you validate the child and you allow your own <clears throat> emotional body and maybe even your physical body to touch the child. So you allow your, your body and your emotional body to become a resonance body for the child's emotion because there is so little child and such a big emotion, yeah? And as soon as the child realizes that you resonate with its emotion, <clears throat> it, release, it, it feels a relief, yeah? The pressure of that emotion becomes more bearable for the child to the degree you validate it. I would say 
you, most people I, I know do that quite spontaneously. I, Asian people do it, Swiss do it. It must be universal. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a secret. You know, parents do it all over the world, siblings do it all over the world, friends do it all over the world. We we care, we extend, we connect not just cognitively with the message what had happened, and establish, um, you know, criminal with criminological accuracy the sequence of events, but we we resonate with the emotional state of our friend or our or our whoever comes to us, and. The person who does that generally tends to feel a relief to the degree that his or her emotion is shared. So that's what, in a way, compassion does. It connects and it allows me, it says, I'm willing, you, you're more important to me than my comfort zone. So I am willing to hold some of your pain or some of your scare or some of your anxiety. And I'm willing to hold some of this. Yeah. We do that when, you know, when our partners come home from a bad day and we, <clears throat> they're not squeaky clean in their process holding. You know, they let us uh, not just know what had happened, but they also enact maybe some of their emotionality. So they speak in a slightly angry way, not, not just about their boss, but right now they're at the kitchen table. They raise their voices a little bit. They make grimaces. They... You know, they let us have a piece of their mind, basically. And, you know, as a sensitive partner, you, you feel that. You modulate mildly. This is a mixture of validating, yes, this is really bad. But now this is a different situation. Look, you're not in there anymore. We've, you've had worse. Now this is me, not your boss talking. <laughs> yeah, we kind of... So we gently present-centered, you know, suggestions. I understand you're in that state, but right now this is a state based on your memory of something that's happened six hours ago. Right now you're sitting with me at the kitchen table, kind of thing. Yeah, we do that. If we're skilled, we do that gradually and politely with a mixture of empathy and diplomacy, yeah? <laughs> you know what I speak of. So... That is an aspect of compassion, and we all do that. It's not some lofty state we have no access to. We all do that quite naturally. Kids do that, very, very young kids. Not just Buddhists have understood this. German philosopher Schopenhauer has based uh, one of his papers and uh, has written <clears throat> written a paper where he based um, human ethics on the capacity to um, feel other people's pain. Paper was uh, not noticed very much because he had some problems with a contemporary of his called Hegel, who was his big bit noir whom he hated and whom he felt it was a charlatan and uh, basically a scoundrel and a fraud. And after having this wonderful paper written for the Danish Academy, Danish Royal Academy, who offered a grant for the best paper to constitute ethics, uh, he, in the, in, the, in the last few paragraphs, he lost his plot a little bit and started to rant about his pet enemy. <clears throat> 
against uh, against whom he was completely hopeless because you know they both taught at the same time at Berlin University and Schopenhauer insisted of putting his lectures at exactly those same times with Hegel so that people had to choose between in Hegel and nobody went to him so he taught there 10 years and he was completely useless so anyway in the last couple of paragraphs he lost his plot and ranted against his pet enemy and didn't get the price but the paper is beautiful it's terse and it's from a completely non-Buddhist and not Buddhist influence, because when he wrote it, he had not even access to the, the few Buddhist books that came towards the end of his life into circulation. He quite clearly argued that the dimension of the ethical is connected with the capacity of human beings to feel each other's pain. Yeah. And he felt this was a lot more reliable a foundation than what his uh, his mentor and his uh, famous predecessor Kant had written, namely uh, the idea that basically ethics should be based on our notion that w what we don't like others do to us, we shouldn't do to others. Which is true, but it's a little cognitive and it's a little remote and it's a lot less tangible than basically connecting with each other's pain as the basis of shared humanity. So compassion is a deep, a deep link between human beings and to obviously hold somebody else's pain means I am confronted with my own pain. If I can't handle my fear, then your fear, when I start to feel it, will activate my fear. And to the degree I am activated in my own fear, I will probably be fairly defended in holding your fear. Yeah. So. The capacity to hold other people's suffering has a direct proportion to my capacity to hold my own pain or to be in touch with my own pain, to be honest with my own pain, to be willing to hold it and to be just basically able to not go under with it, not dissociate and split off or not over-engage and just make it go away by some kind of... Uh, overcompensating activity which gives me a temporary focus without actually holding the pain or just going numb maybe that's another one so the capacity to hold one's own pain is the basis for holding other people's pain and it is often the recall of our own struggle that makes us most compassionate Ajahn Chah insisted that he learned most of his life not through sitting out in the forest with tigers or, to, or through endless meditation, but through being with people. Yeah. What made him such a powerfully empowering teacher was that he had suffered, that he knew what desire was. Yeah. Made him so compassionate and effective when uh, teaching people who felt assailed by desire who felt assailed by despair, felt assailed by anger. Um, it's the depth of our own suffering that often offers us the capacity to hold other people in their suffering. We all know that. Some, some kind of smart aleckish, uh, priggish uh, do-gooder generally doesn't help us when we're going through you know, our stories and the depth of our troughs. We often need people who have been there, 
there are people who seem to not be touched by our particular suffering, and they're rarely of a use, practical use. There may be as an inspiration there, sort of radiant examples. If I only was steadfast like Mother Teresa, so wonderful. Yeah, have a look at Mother Teresa's diaries. It's disturbing to see how somebody who did so much good and was so giving and unstinting in her application, what what uh, isolation and depth she must have experienced if we are to believe her diaries. Yeah, that some of that astounding amount of steadfastness and goodness did not necessarily come from jubilant and beatific inner state of bliss. It seems to be that she has experienced quite her fair share of uh, down states, really grim states and lonely states, isolated, doubting states. So knowing our own depth, I mean not just a profundity, I mean the abysses. Yeah? Knowing our own abysses uh, is sometimes very helpful in meeting other people in their suffering and when they go through tough times or when they go through particular forms of suffering. Mudita, the capacity to resonate in joy with that which is successful, that which is good, that which is uh, giving rise to gladness in others' lives. This is often something while compassion is something that we can easily have for people, even though we may not have shared their religion or speak their language or share their customs, mudita often we have only for people who are close. Our family members, our friends, our kids, our parents, are, you know, basically people whom we have close connections. If they're further away, it seems more difficult to resonate with, with the joy in other people's life. I somehow need to know them a lot better before I can connect with the joy. With their pain, somehow, that seems easier. That seems to travel further and travel more easily and permeate my, um, yeah, just the skin of my emotional world easier. Uh, mudita is a powerful capacity. To be able to share in the joy of others makes me potentially a very happy sort of guy because when I have uh, people who experience good things, I can, you know, I can have a part in this. It takes me out of my isolation. It takes me out of the solipsism of my perspective onto the world. It takes me out of my obsession with what I don't get or what, what I'm still lacking or what I can't shed definitively or so. Um, it's a powerful emotion and the Buddha <clears throat> makes a very strong point that this is something we need to cultivate. Even as meditators, we're encouraged. Sati, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta has a, has a passage, one of the 16 stages there, says, you know, this is a stage of practice when you learn to gladden your mind. That's the word modati and mudita is in the same word field. So the joy link into the joy and resonate in joy with that which is uh, giving rise to, to or that which is successful or good or celebratory, jubilant, um, rejoicing with others is a, an encouragement.
As a meditator, I may find I enjoy in people sitting here. I may enjoy um, goodness as I find it in myself, then it is simple joy, or I may find goodness as it is in others, then it is what I would call sympathetic joy, which in English just sounds a little abstract and a little technical. Um, Germans who are famous and have been blamed for having nasty words like schadenfreude, the joy and the suffering of others, also have kindly uh, the word of mitfreude, yeah, the joy with others, which is, uh, comes a lot more natural somehow in German. Not a nation famous for uh, big joyous outbursts, but uh, nevertheless, the, the language does offer some concept for this particular emotion. So, as a meditator, that means I resonate with good. I resonate with that which is uplifting. I resonate with that which gives me gladness. Yeah. And sometimes in all my ambition and in all my problem-centeredness, I, I miss out on this. I miss out on sensing the joy just in you know, how much I've given up to be here or sensing the joy that I'm not alone in here, that all these people who I don't know have come here as well, and somehow it's easier for me to sit here if there are others. I'm not so alone. Even though I may not talk to them and I don't know what's going on in them, but they're there, and they show me that they care. They show me that this is important to them. They show me that they're willing to get out of bed for this. Um, which, um, <clears throat> I don't know, I have always felt that occurring most profoundly when I went to India for the first time. You know, I grew up in the West and I grew up in a sort of Buddhism that is, you know, converted garages and maybe lofts and later on converted schools and things like that. It's always been a very marginal sort of Buddhism. And then going to Thailand was suddenly, it was a real, that was a mind shift. Suddenly from being marginal, I was kind of, I was now in a mainstream religion, you know, Thailand is still 96% Buddhist despite almost 400 years of Christianization. <laughs> Hasn't worked. So, so suddenly you're mainstream, you know, coming from the converted garage and having freaked parents about religious vocation of their son and rather ditching a profession and what they thought were promising career prospects. Um, you know, being rather funny in a sort of archaic piece of cloth running around in wet England, you know? <laughs> Suddenly you become utterly normal, you know. You're one of a quarter million monastics in Thailand. You, you can't really make a case for being particularly special, even if you happen to have white skin and hair in all the wrong places and so forth, which makes you a little bit abnormal. But still, as a monk, you're quite normal. Yeah. But I was really, really touched when I, uh, years into my life in Thailand, I went with a friend to India and we walked. We had a ticket in, no money, and a ticket out. And we decided we wanted to walk holy places. So we did a good deal of that. So we did three out of four on foot. And um, as you know, India is not particularly Buddhist anymore. Yeah? It has forgotten its, its, its grand son, uh, 
Buddhism has more or less died out in India in um, at the latest in the 12th century and uh, you know we had a beautiful conversion somewhere in the 50s with Ambedkar but basically Indian Buddhists are not many left you know so when you go through India as a beggar monk then you will be in a non-Buddhist environment which simply does not know what monks are like you know they kept asking us how many children we had and when we said we didn't have any children they said what's wrong with your wives <laughs> interesting concept so anyway uh, we arrived at some point in Bodhgaya and I was you know I was wiped we had done a long march that day and many things have happened um, and um, just finding suddenly that Mahabodhi stupa there you know one of the uh, old buildings and quite sizable and genuinely Buddhist building just being there and arriving there I was really touched I really was touched for all those people who had fed Buddhists monks and nuns over the centuries all these guys whom we whose names we would never know uh, not the famous names who had given you know donations and to whose names we know from books and whose names we know from big monasteries. With all those countless, countless, countless faithful people who had been generous and diligent and had offered their support to this, uh, that I, kid of Bern, Switzerland, could wade in there in the late 90s of the last century and find that there, you know. I was really touched. And for the three weeks I stayed there, I was really touched every time I saw this. And my heart felt really uplifted by the thought that I didn't have to invent dependent arising. Yeah? Or that there was a Buddha who had actually had spelled out all these wonderful things I benefited from. That something had come down for two and a half millennia that I, you know, who knew nothing of all this and who didn't deem myself to be highly privileged or didn't sense that I had overwhelming amount of perfections going in my life, that I could have access to this, yeah? that this was waiting and welcoming me in. I was, I was in tears, you know, for quite a while. And I realized that this came completely unexpected to me. This is not something I had grown up knowing is a virtue, contentment and joy at this, at this sort of, at a sense of belonging to something a lot bigger than my self-construct was willing to let in, you know, for many, many, many years. And suddenly, there I was, you know, with blistered feet and tired, and yet I felt like the name, you know, this is the navel of the world, yeah? and this kind of sunk in. Uh, as a as an emotional reality I had immediate access to. It wasn't a matter of belief or it wasn't a matter of uh, fervent uh, missionary zeal or so. It was just an immense degree of coming home into something that I had never thought was possible for me. Yeah. A connection to something suddenly quite timeless. It wasn't just me on my meditation cushion or a few weird guys in a monastery somewhere in West Sussex or so. It was suddenly, it was connected right down to 
humanity, right down to the possibility that a visionary had held for such a humanity. And I was connected to all the people who had believed in this, who had made this possible, who had struggled on this, who had uh, offered some of their wealth or their energy or their intelligence or, or their elbow grease to make this continue in time. You know, I was really profoundly touched. In a way, I would have never thought, you know. And I looked around and I was genuinely glad to see Koreans and Japanese, to see Bhutanese and to see Indians and Europeans and Thais and, you know, all there circumambulating this magnificent building. So, I believe there is an immense power feeling this mudita, letting it in. That's certainly how it felt for me, letting it in. And I did not think, when I heard about this, I thought this is something I need to do, I need to produce. And that's what I would like to challenge. If you happen to have the feeling that you need to produce these Brahma Viharas, think again, please. Maybe they don't need to be produced. Maybe they seep up from the bottom. Maybe they're there already, but you don't let them in. Maybe your synapses are not working for the Brahmavihara channel. Yeah? All it needs is a, f a little bit of fine-tuning of your synaptic networks. The stuff is already there, but you somehow don't take it out of the atmosphere. Yeah? And all it needs is a little bit rewiring, and suddenly you know, you're actually on the right side, and the grass is growing on your side. It's, it's, you're not on the wrong side. You're not on the wrong planet. You're not in the wrong movie. The last one is one of the most misunderstood form. Brahma-Vihara's equanimity. Still, it's important to understand this is a relational aspect. I am, in all four of these Brahma-Viharas, I am in relationship. As I said some time ago, the smallest unit of experience is not one, it's two. It is, even if I'm absolutely alone, I still am in a relationship to my experience. I'm in a relationship to myself. So the smallest unit when I experience anything <laughs> is dual. Yeah. Um, it is a field in which there is this side and that side. There is uh, a mutuality going on in there. So it is uh, important to understand that how these Brahma-Viharas as interior cultivation affect my relational world and as when I practice them in the relational world they in turn affect my interior world. These Brahma Viharas, um, the last one is a capacity to recognize past and present. Yeah? The capacity to recognize that I have an influence on things here but that influence is not omnipotence, you know, I cannot fix anything and I have, there are boundaries to, there are things I can change and there are things I cannot change. One of the things we are uh, urged to contemplate in the fourth of the Brahma Viharas is something called uh, Kamasakata, the uh, personal responsibility, you know, that we are responsible in our doings. This is not just 
me who is responsible. You, you are also responsible. And there are things, even if I care for you, I cannot fix. There are things I need to find peace with the fact that I may not be able to fix your world. Um, the fourth of the Brahma Viharas lets me acknowledge um, ownership. It lets me acknowledge uh, causality. It lets me acknowledge that there is an okayness in every experience. There is an okay. Even horrible experiences have a place of okayness. And even horrible, monstrous experiences hold the potential for transformation. That fourth of the Brahma Viharas lets me know this. It lets me know, even if things are really horrible and dire and overwhelming, that there is something in there that allows for change, that allows for transformation, that allows for healing, healing in a very profound way. If I do lose that fourth of the Brahma Viharas, I'm, I'm endangered as a therapist, as a teacher, as a fellow human being confronted with other people's suffering and lives and my own very limited means to change anything, I am completely overwhelmed. So uh, that overwhelm in, in these days is called burnout or, or cynicism. Or uh, If I do not have that fourth of the Brahma Viharas, I just go into a place where I start to uh, resignate. Is that a word? Yeah. I kind of give up on things. Because it seems impossible to hold, or impossible to address, or impossible to survive. I just give up. And I become deadened in some way. Either cynical, or I, I numb out, or I screen out cognitively the suffering of people, and I just become callous. Or I burn out, I just kind of burn my candle at both ends as long as I can, although I do not think it is sustainable and then I just burn out. This is very easy to see in many uh, helping professions. So that fourth of the Brahma Viharas shows me a sense of boundary. It shows me a capacity to look that my own needs do not go away just because your needs are overwhelming. And if I care for you and if I want to make our relationship a sustainable one, I need to Continue to care for me, even though your suffering may be bigger than mine. Yes, sacrifice is good, and sacrifices can take place, but I need to understand that my needs do not go away because you have maybe more urgent needs, or your needs seem to be bigger. Yeah. And if I do not take care of this balance in there, one of the translations of Upeka is impartiality, yeah. then I get lost. And I cannot afford too much of that getting lost. I want to end with a little piece. Uh, there is much more to say, and I hope to say more tomorrow, but there's a little piece, and this is definitely not very famous, uh, certainly not as famous as it should be. And this is a connection between uh, the Brahma Viharas as individual virtues and um, four qualities called Sangahavatus, which are um, in variously translated. One way of translating them is the four grounds for social harmony or the four grounds of sustaining favorable relationship. 
And these, they're connected, the four, yeah. The first one is <coughs> generosity, and it's equated with metta. So when Brahma Viharas are individual virtues, um, they have an equivalent in a sort of in the social sphere. And in the social sphere, uh, the virtue is generosity, is dana. In the personal sphere of individual virtue, compassion is <coughs> paralleled to a quality called atajarya, which means beneficial action or beneficial conduct, doing things for others. Um, the third one, mudita, the capacity uh, to resonate in joy and uh, rejoice uh, with others is paralleled with a quality called piyavaja, kindly words. And the fourth one, upeka, is paralleled with a social virtue called samanatata, which, pardon me, literally means impartiality yeah, or participation. And I want to read you a small little bit, which is completely buried in the depth of the numerical sayings here. It's about a character called Hataka. Um, he is a, a wealthy <coughs> man who comes to the Buddha and visits him. And um, the Buddha addresses him and says, your retinue is large, Hataka. How do you sustain this, this large retinue? <coughs> You know, the Buddha says, and one hears an almost admiring sort of uh, tone of voice. And then Hataka answers and says, I do so, Bhante, by the four means of sustaining a favorable, favorable relationship taught by the Blessed One. And indeed, you know, 400 pages earlier, these were mentioned as qualities the Buddha has spoken of. Um, when I know this one is to be sustained by a gift, I sustain him by a gift. When I know this one is to be sustained by endearing speech, I sustain him by endearing speech. When I know this one is to be sustained by beneficent conduct, I sustain him by beneficent conduct. When I know this one is to be sustained by impartiality, I sustain him by impartiality. There is also wealth in my family, Bante. I don't think they would listen to me if I were poor. <laughs> And then, it's a realistic man, Hataka, isn't it? Good, good, Hataka. This is the Buddha speaking. This is the method by which you can sustain a large retinue. For all those in the past who sustained a large retinue did so by these same four means of sustaining favorable relationship. All those in the future who will sustain a large retinue will do so by those same four means of sustaining favorable relationship. And all those at present who sustain a large retinue do so by these same four means of sustaining favorable relationship. One of my teachers, <coughs> Tanjakun Brahmaguna, born in Thailand, has uh, translated them as uh, the foundations for social harmony and has explicitly paralleled the four Brahmaviharas uh, with those four grounds of uh, sustenance for social harmony, which I think is an interesting little twist and something one doesn't uh, always hear. So it's buried there in the Anguttara Nikaya. For those of you who are keen in the book, the book of Eights, it's the 24th piece in the book of Eights. Hataka is a famous layman, quite a character. Good, enough for tonight. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>